we finish a long journey uh, through the book of 1 Corinthians. We have been living in Corinth for a really long time. Uh, it is amazing when you look back on all the different topics that Paul has addressed um, in this remarkable letter uh, to this flesh and blood church uh, that needed to learn. Uh, again, they came out of the Greco-Roman faith. Uh, there were some Jews in their community, uh, but they came out of the Greco-Roman faith. So um, Paul was starting um, at, at ground level zero with the Corinthians, teaching them about the Christian faith because uh, they didn't even understand basics of Judaism for a lot of them. Uh, so he had to teach them basics about the Christian faith. Um, and that's why it's a rather lengthy letter, and he has talked about so many different uh, topics. But he's wrapping it up. And I, like I said, I love these sections where he wraps it up. Some people think these are about as interesting as the genealogies in the Bible, and they just kind of skip over them. But uh, this is where we find the autobiographical information about Paul, in the, in, usually in these concluding sections of his letters. Uh, this is where we find out about his circle of friends. Uh, he was remarkable in regards to friendship. Uh, we could all learn from him. I think with all the social media, we're actually getting worse about the, the art of friendship. But uh, Paul was remarkable with friendship. He, he created uh, an unbelievable network of Christians over the ancient Mediterranean world. Uh, that's one of the things that God used to, to grant the Apostle Paul so much success. I mean, you're really sitting here on the other side of the globe in High Point, North Carolina, 2,000 years later, uh, being part of this um, way of being Jewish, embracing this Jewish Messiah who came in fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. Um, you're here because of the work Paul started and, and advanced in such a tremendous way when he took when he took the good news of Jesus from Jerusalem uh, to the Gentile world. So he's a fascinating, fascinating person, and I do commend his life to you. Anyway, so we, we started into chapter 16 last week, where we just began looking at some of his instructions. We, we saw what he said last week about uh, uh, telling the church there to take a collection when they worshiped each week on the first day of the week, when they worshiped each week on the first day of the week to take that collection so that um, it could be sent to the, um, the needy in, the, in, in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, who always um, seem to be a little more impoverished than some of the uh, Christians around the Mediterranean world. And I, and I mentioned last week, I think one of the reasons Paul did that besides wanting to provide relief for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, is he was knitting together the Gentile world and the Jewish world by getting the Gentile world to send an offering to Jerusalem. And we know that it, it does eventually go to Jerusalem. Uh, so we're picking up at verse 5. He's talking about his plans for travel. And you have to kind of pay attention to what he's saying to figure out uh, who's going where, when, and how. But he's talking about his plans for travel, and then he's just going to do as he always does, just give some final instructions and basically say goodbye at the end of the letter. Uh, and you are going to be, again, introduced to some of the circle of, of Paul's friends. He, he didn't do what he did all by himself. So look at verse 5. Paul says, I will visit you 
So he wants to come back to Corinth. Uh, do you read, he's getting ready to say it again, but do you remember where he's at as he writes? He's in Ephesus. He's in Ephesus, which is modern day Turkey. Um, it's the ancient Roman province of uh, Asia Minor. Uh, it's on the west coast of uh, Turkey. It is uh, a major, major city in the ancient world. Uh, so he's in Ephesus. He's writing back to the church at Corinth. He stayed in Corinth uh, about 18 months. We know that from the book of Acts. He stayed in Corinth about 18 months. Uh, he, stays at, he stayed in Ephesus the longest he stayed anywhere, uh, perhaps almost as long as three years. But he's in Ephesus on the other side of the GNC, and he's, he's sent this letter to the church at Corinth. But he says, I will come, I will visit you. He wants to return. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. If you remember your high school geography, Macedonia is what we would call today the northern part of Greece. The southern part of Greece, which you're going to hear Paul mention in a second, is Achaia. Uh, that's the southern part of what we would call Greece today. But uh, in Paul's day, it was, it was Macedonia. That's where, that's where Philip of Macedonia, uh, Alexander, the great conqueror of Macedonia, was from there. So he, uh, he, would, he, would, go, he would like go up to Troas above uh, Ephesus, catch a boat across the Mediterranean Sea, land in Macedonia, and then travel sort of uh, north, travel sort of south, southwest from, from Macedonia if he's, if he's going to Corinth. But he says, I'm going to visit you. I intend to come to Macedonia. I intend to pass through uh, Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. Um, anytime you hear Paul say that in his letters, I, I think part of what he's doing is, I love you. I want to come see you, but I also want to check up on you to see if you've paid attention to what I've been saying to you. So he, he tells them all of the stuff he tells them in his letter. And then he says, I'm showing up, by the way. Uh, so he, he's going to show up and see how his, how, how his friends are doing in Corinth. And what he, say, what he says at this point is pretty typical. He says, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, because the winter is a hard time to travel, or even spend the winter so that you may... Some trans, the, the Greek is so that you may send me on my way. Uh, now, some English translations, like the one in front of me, just kind of helps you out to know what Paul's saying, so that you may help me. So he's saying, I'm coming, I love you, I'm going to check up on you, and, and I need you to kind of participate in my missionary journeys um, by financial support. And Paul expected that when he made his way through his churches. So he's saying that he's coming, he's going to spend probably the winter with them. Uh, he's probably writing, well, we know exactly when he's writing, because we know the Jewish calendar, and you'll see this in just a few moments. He's writing between, um, probably, he's writing in the spring. He's probably writing between Passover and the Jewish festival of um, Shavuot, which is the Christian festival of Pentecost. He's going to tell you that. Um, so he's probably writing in the spring. He, he knows that by the time he gets there, uh, it may be getting in the fall. It takes a while to travel in the ancient world. And he says, I'm going to stay put. Traveling in the winter was, was not easy. So he says, I may spend the winter there. He, he wants to give them plenty of time to help, to help them help him. 
to give uh, them plenty of time to help them send him on his way. Um, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Verse 7, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. One of the things you notice from the book of Acts is uh, even though Paul made his schedule, made his plans, he could tell you his plans in advance, uh, but he was always open to the Holy Spirit changing his plans. You see that and you hear him reference that uh, in the book of Acts as, as Luke writes about him in the book of Acts. So if the Lord permits, I'm going to come and spend some time with you. Um, verse 8, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Again, I think he's writing between Passover and Pentecost. He's writing between um, um, early spring, because we know when Passover is, that's our Easter. We know when Jewish Shavuot is, because we have our own Pentecost, which is the same day as the Jewish Pentecost. So that's usually uh, late May or June. So he's saying, I'm, I'm going to stay in Ephesus until probably Pentecost. He wants to celebrate, and take note of this, he's, he's, he's celebrating these festivals. He's still using the Jewish calendar to keep time. That's how they thought about the calendar. Um, the Jewish festivals, Judaism in general, remember three quarters of your Bible is Old Testament. Three quarters of your Bible is Hebrew Bible. We did not get a get rid of it uh, when when the Christian church got going. We had long debates for about 200 years as to what the role of the Hebrew Bible is for us. And there were people like Marcion in the life of the early Christian community who said, get rid of it. They were anti-Jewish. They didn't like Judaism. They had their reasons. And they, that's why for about 200 years we, we debated in the Christian community how Jewish do you have to be to be Christian? And part of that was, do the scriptures, and again, the Old Testament's the only scriptures the New Testament church knew. They were in the process of writing what would become New Testament. But the Old Testament was their scripture. They used the Old Testament to preach Jesus from. That's all they knew was what we call the Old Testament, which is why uh, the Christians who said we're keeping the Old Testament won, that, won the argument. It took about 200 years. Now, the sad thing is, I, I run across Christians in Methodist churches who, by default have gotten rid of the Old Testament. Um, you know, my practice every morning is to read a chapter of Old Testament, chapter of New Testament. So make sure you realize three quarters of your Bible is Old Testament. Judaism is important. Um, was very important to the early church. And there's a whole lot that you don't get that you read about in the New Testament because you're not understanding the Jewish context. Which, by the way, another commercial, that's why in the fall I'm going to start... I'm going to start making our way through the book of John, which could take forever, except we're going to be specifically looking at how the book of John is organized around Jewish festivals. That's how the book of John really is organized. And what Jesus is doing in the book of John, you don't really pick up all these laying down unless you understand that when he stands in the temple and says, all who are thirsty, come to me, He's saying that on the great final day of the Feast of Sukkot. That's why the community there in Jerusalem would have heard a whole lot more than just come let me give you a sip of water when he said, all who are thirsty come to me. So again, the Jewish faith is... is, is uh, we, 
there's only two groups, there's only two Jewish groups that survived the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And of course, and of course the temple was destroyed in 70 AD uh, because that was the first Jewish revolt. And Rome came down hard when you revolted against Rome. So there, there's only two Jewish groups that survived. Uh, the first Jewish revolt that ended with the destruction of the temple. There was a second Jewish revolt in one, 132 through 135. Um, after, after that is when Rome ran all the Jews out of uh, Jerusalem, out of Judea. And that's when, after that second Jewish revolt, that the Romans, to insult the Jews, said this place is no longer Judea. And they renamed it what? Palestine. Out of the, out of, you, know, out of, you know, remembering the Philistines, the hated enemies of the Jewish people. So, yeah, after, after 135, there's um, very few Jews left uh, around Jerusalem. And that's why there's only two, two groups that survived the first, second Jewish revolts there around 70 AD and the 130s. Uh, the Essenes didn't survive. The Sadducees didn't survive. The zealots that you read about in the New Testament, they didn't survive. Uh, the Pharisees survived. The Pharisees are those who packed up and went to the coast and, and kind of remade Judaism without a temple, without animal sacrifice, all that stuff. Uh, so the Pharisees survived. And the only other Jewish group that survived was that group that was called the Nazarenes inside of uh, the Holy Land. Uh, and what were they called outside of the Holy Land according to the book of Acts? Christians. They were called Christians outside the Holy Land. In the Holy Land, they were called Nazarenes. Those were the only two Jewish groups that survived uh, the first and second um, Jewish revolts. So I say that again, you need to realize how Jewish you are. Um, I, I, even, I even take it to the extent when I go to England and they put blood pudding on the buffet, there's a lot of reasons why I don't eat it. And one of the reasons is I, I've got enough Judaism in me. I don't eat blood. Remember, that's one of the core convictions of the Jewish faith. You bleed your animals, you get rid of the blood, then you, you can eat it. But yeah, so um, yeah, there's a lot of Judaism in us. Anyway, so you'll notice stuff like here with Paul. He's making reference to Pentecost or Shavuot in Hebrew, uh, Pesach. Uh, he's, making, he's making reference to these Jewish festivals. You see when he finally makes it back to Jerusalem, what does he do? Temple's still standing. He goes back to Jerusalem and uh, goes through rites of purification. He goes back to the temple and, and worships in the temple. Um, it's only in the second century after um, we got further and further further geographically away from Jerusalem and we became more and more and more Gentile that, um, that we, 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 we distanced ourselves we didn't purposely mean to all the time, but we did ourselves from Judaism up to the up to the middle of the second century. As a matter of fact, um, we there was a large group of the Christian community that we kept Easter. We observed Easter every year on the fourteenth of Nisan. Why? Because that's Passover. Um, as the church became less Jewish, um, that fell by the wayside. How do we determine Easter now? If anybody can tell me, I'll be real impressed. It's like the first Sunday after the 
first blue moon after Walmart has a sale and after the tide changes. I can't even figure out how we observe Easter now. Uh, we used to be Jewish enough at the beginning, 14th of Nisan is a Jewish uh, month. 14th of Nisan is when they observe, observe Passover, and uh, that, we just said that was Easter uh, because he obviously was crucified at Passover. Um, that faded away, and now you'll notice sometimes Passover and, and Easter are sort of close to each other, but they, 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 they're not connected like they used to be in Christian community. But it took a long time for us to get geographically away from Jerusalem, um, which is why a lot of Christians are left in this strange position of reading this book, this every author of the New Testament is Jewish, except maybe one, Who's the one that's probably not Jewish by birth? Luke, yeah. So, um, and he's a God-fearer. He has attached himself to the Jewish community. We know that. But every author of this book, the New Testament, is Jewish, and they're writing from a Jewish background. They're using the Jewish scriptures, and we're in an unfortunate position that a lot of Christians are trying to interpret this book, and Judaism is, is very foreign to them. So when Paul here is talking about Pentecost, he's not talking about our Pentecost, though we had a Pentecost on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost just means the 50th days, 50th day. In the Jewish world, it's the 50th day after the giving of the law. Uh, it's still the 50th day. 50th is Greek, is a Greek term. Uh, uh, Shavuot is the Hebrew term. But they're still observing these festivals. Anyway, he's going, he's going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. And he gives you the reason in verse 9 why he's staying put. For a wide door of effective work is open to me. And there are many adversaries, though. Uh, even though there are many adversaries, evidently a lot of converts to, to, this, to this new way of being Jewish. A lot of converts. And Paul's, um, Paul wants to stay there because he's being fruitful there. So that's why he's going to stay in Ephesus to Pentecost. Then look at verse 10. We start seeing some of the friends of Paul. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Um, Timothy was his son in the faith. That's what he calls him. Uh, you can read about Timothy in the book of Acts. You can read about Timothy in 1 Timothy. You can read about Timothy in 2 Timothy. And it's really fascinating when you see some of the same things being mentioned or alluded to throughout the New Testament. You notice here he says, when Timothy comes... To you there in Corinth, see that you put him at ease among you. Now, do you, there's a famous verse in 2 Timothy. It's chapter 1, verse 7, uh, where Paul is writing to Timothy, but we, we use it for ourselves, where Paul says to Timothy, God has not given you a spirit of fear. He actually says a spirit of timidity but of, uh, of, of courage and strong mind and self-control. But he says to Paul, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, God has not given you a spirit of fear or timidity. And he says here, put him at ease when he comes to you. Uh, the word Timothy, the name Timothy, is even connected to the word timid, timidity. So we know from the New Testament, Timothy he, he is evidently bold enough to be a Christian missionary and travel the world, but there evidently was a timid, shy side to Timothy also. 
We know that from the New Testament. We, we read that in the New Testament. That's why Paul, Paul even says to him in 2 Timothy, don't let people look down on you because of your age. Now, I can't imagine anybody looking down on Paul because of his age. He's not going to let you look down on him. But Timothy needed encouragement. And he's saying to the Christians in Corinth, put him at ease. Put him at ease when he comes. So we can even figure out the personality of some of these people if we read it closely. So when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord. Verse 11, so let no one despise him. Again, that's the same sort of thing that he says in, in, in 2 Timothy. Again, you, you should say, hmm, why would people despise Timothy? Well, we do know he's a little shy. He's timid. He's young, much younger than Paul. Beyond that, we don't know why, why he would be worrying about somebody despising Timothy. Uh, when you get to heaven one day, you can have a conversation with Timothy and get to know a little more about Timothy's personality. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me. For I'm expecting him with the brothers. Again, you know Paul well enough. You know what he's saying at this point. Help fund his missionary tours. Yeah. He was not born a Jew. You've read the book of Acts. Timothy was not born a Jew. He, was, um, he had a Jewish mother. He had a Gentile father. Which is why when Paul said to Timothy, this is where I said, Paul, Timothy's got some courage. He's, he's a Christian missionary. He's following Paul. And do you remember from the book of Acts when Paul recruited Timothy, who had a Jewish mother and a Gentile father, Greek father? Uh, he, he asked the young but adult Timothy. I don't know that he asked. That's not Paul's style. Paul told the young but adult Timothy when he recruited him from the missionary work the Timothy that was um, born of a Jewish mother and a Gentile father, that he had to do what? Or had to have what done to him? Be circumcised. Because Paul knew, not that circumcision was essential for much of anything, but Paul knew that he would be taking Timothy with him into Jewish settings. And for the purpose of Timothy uh, having some uh, influence, credibility with the Jews, yeah, he... He had, he had Timothy circumcised as a young adult. And Timothy said yes, sir, to that because he wanted to follow Paul in the missionary. So, yeah, Timothy's a fascinating character. But a lot of this kind of stuff that you learn from these people in the New Testament, you sort of have to read closely uh, in the text. But, yeah, I, I love Timothy. I, yeah, have a chat with him when you get to heaven. There's a lot about Timothy. Like, did you even say, Paul, do I have to? When Paul said, we need to, we need to get you ready for your missionary trip by, by circumcision. I, I can, I, if I'd have been Timothy, I'd have said, you, you talk to the Jews. Let me hang out with the Gentiles. But um, Timothy submitted. And anyway, but he wants Timothy, obviously, to get some more financial support from those in Corinth. So look at verse 12. Here comes some more final instructions. Now concerning our brother Apollos. Now the first thing you need, to, by the way, we don't know who these brothers are in verse 11 that may be coming with Timothy. Again, I just point out Paul had a wide network. 
But in verse 12, you, you, you encounter the person he calls our brother Apollos. Do you remember way back at the early part of 1 Corinthians, Paul was talking about divisions in Corinth. And he said, some of you say you're of Peter. Some of you say you're of Apollos. Some of you say you're bearing all the rest of us. You're just of Jesus. And Paul kind of rakes them over the coals for the way they are, are dividing. Um, evidently, Paul did not let that influence his relationship with Apollo, Apollos. Uh, because Apollos, we know, again, from the book of Acts, a brilliant, great preacher. Uh, he was Gentile. Um, but even though um, he, probably, he probably was a much better, we know this from the book of Acts, he prob and probably 1 Corinthians, the early sages, he probably was a much better preacher than Paul was. Which is why some of the people gravitated toward him in Corinth, some gravitated toward Peter, some few of them gravitated toward Paul. But Paul didn't let that get in his way of his relationship with Apollos. He says, now concerning our brother Apollos, who is evidently with Paul in Ephesus at this point. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to visit you with the other brothers. Uh, but it was not at all his will or his desire to come now. So Apollos is with, is with Paul in Ephesus. He will come when he has opportunity. Verse, look at verse 13 and 14. He almost summarizes what he said throughout the book in verses 13 and 14. By the way, this was a typical uh, style of writing in the Greco-Roman world to summarize at the end. He says, he gives five commandments. Paul didn't hesitate to tell you what you need to do. He gives five commandments. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Uh, what you have there in verse 13 are basically Greek words that are from the military world. That's really what he means when he says act like men. He's telling them to be good soldiers. And um, women, obviously, in the New Testament world of Paul, Women obviously were, could be good soldiers for Jesus Christ. We see them in the New Testament. So he's, acting, he's telling them to be like, be good soldiers, but make sure you do everything that you do in love. Uh, just a couple things there. Notice he says, stand firm in, I hope your translation has the before the word faith. Should have, right? Good. Shake your head, yes. I'm just curious. Um, there's two ways faith is talked about in the New Testament. When Paul talks about faith without an article like the, when Paul talks about faith, he's talking about it in his oldest sense of faith. Faith being trust or confidence or belief in, in Jesus Christ. That, that's what he means by faith. Uh, just trust, confidence, belief in Jesus Christ. But all of a sudden, and this is kind of interesting because if you look at 2 Timothy and 1 Timothy and Titus, um, you run across this phrase, the faith. Some people who don't read as well as they should say those books must be so late. Uh, they must be so late that Paul didn't really write them because by the time you get to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus, he's not talking about faith as belief, confidence, uh, trust in Jesus. He's talking about in those latter books, uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, he's talking about the faith, 
which the faith is like a, a, a body of doctrine, what we believe. Uh, in my Catholic circles is where I hear Catholics talking about the faith. Contend for the faith. Keep the faith. So faith is used both ways in the New Testament. And there are brilliant scholars. I'm putting that a little bit in quotation marks. There are brilliant scholars who have made their living in New Testament studies who um, do all their writing about how First and Second Timothy and um, Titus uh, are, are so late because faith as trust and confidence in Jesus has morphed into a set of doctrine, uh, have, has morphed into sort of a religion, the faith. And that came so late in First, Second Timothy and Titus that Paul couldn't have written those letters. You, you want to point out 1 Corinthians chapter 16 to him. Paul used that term too, the faith, and nobody questions the authenticity of 1 Corinthians as something that we, they know Paul the apostle wrote. Everybody says that, but they, for some reason, when they run across the faith being referenced in those other letters, they say that sounds too Catholic, that sounds too late, that sounds too developed. That had to come after the time of Paul. Well, you read better than some of these scholars read. Right here it is, the faith. And that's a body of doctrine. So he's saying, stand firm in the faith. Don't make this thing up as you go. Uh, the doctrine that you've received from Paul and the apostles, you just pass on that doctrine. You, you don't make it up as you go. So you see, stand firm in the faith there. Act like men, be strong. Um, and, and everything should be done in love. Um, as I quickly try to start wrapping up, let me just point out something. Because I shouldn't even need to point this out, but it's, it's sort of the community, the world we're in here in the West now. Um, as Christians, and, and we, we are Jewish in so many ways, and one of those ways we're Jewish is uh, we, we are good at arguing with each other. If you think Christians argue too much with each other, remember the Jewish faith. That's how they learn is by arguing with each other. Go to the Holy Land, you think they're mad at each other. They're just having a conversation. They're just sharing opinions. Um, we, we know that Jews almost stereotypically are argumentative, um, but we Christians are, are too. In this, in this contemporary age in which I find myself living, and you too, um, as, 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 as doctrine gets debated, as stands get debated, as social issues get debated, there's, there's always going to be a part of the church that think they have, um, they've cornered the market on love. I'll just be overt at this. I, I know this won't shock you. Um, in the life of the contemporary church, I sort of come on, I, I sort of come down on the traditional side. Are you shocked? Okay, good. I just didn't know how well you know me. Um, Anyway, I sort of come down the traditional side of the church. Uh, I don't like the word conservative, but that's sort of how I come across. I get, I get put in that side of the church um, because I don't like, I don't think we should be making this up every other week or so. I had a clergy tell me one time when I said that, well, what's the fun of that? Um, we are to pass on what we've received. Anyway, uh, particularly in this contemporary age, if you happen to be on the traditional side of the church, um, yeah, we get people want to come at us all the time and 
talk about that they don't they they think we're we're not loving. You know, one thing that Christians should agree on across the board um, is love. We all esteem love. I may love you enough to say, no, don't do that. I may love you enough to say, no, that's not the standard. Now, the people who say they love you enough that they don't care what you do, I don't know that their form of love is true. But we should all give each other credit that we're all after love. You know, Paul always was seen as sort of a harsh. He's, been, he's accused of being female-hating, misogynistic, chauvinist. Paul was into love. Who wrote 1 Corinthians 13? Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13. So that's not the issue. Uh, we, we all agree. You know. Now, sometimes when people want to debate who, who the loving people are and who the loving people are not, I do want to ask them, will you define love for me? Because some people never get to that point. Uh, before you want to use love as your weapon as to who loves and who doesn't, at least define love for me. But yeah, love, we, we all know that we, we are all seeking to do what we do in love. Um, yeah, just don't let any, you know, as you listen to debates in the Christian community, don't ever accept the assumption that one side is more loving than the other. Um, anyway, I offer you that at no extra charge, uh, particularly for the Methodist in the room. I offer you that at no extra charge. Look at verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household is Stephanus. Remember way back early, Paul says Stephanus was the only one he himself personally baptized. Uh, now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. Achaia is the, the southern part of of. Greece, what we'd call Greece. That's that's where that's where Corinth is. So Stephanus and his household um, were were the first converts in that region, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Verse sixteen: Be subject to such as these. Uh, people say in First, Second Timothy, and Titus, because you see a hierarchy developing. That's too late for Paul. Right here's Paul making reference to a hierarchy already. So Paul himself developed a hierarchy, verse 16. Be subject to such as these, Stephanus and his household. Uh, verse 17, uh, to such as these and to, and, and to every fellow worker, and that included women, to every fellow worker uh, and laborer. Verse 17, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. Again, he had a wide range of friends. He knew how to do friendship and build networks because they have made up for your absence. Paul is missing his friends in Corinth. Uh, but he's, he's been with Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, and somehow they've, they've helped make up for the absence of all his other friends. Verse 18, for they, they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. So as soon as Paul got started, Paul was developing a sense of hierarchy in the Christian community. Uh, verse 19, these are his final greetings. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca or Priscilla uh, together. And again, notice they're both mentioned as a married couple. That's who Paul lived with when Paul was in Corinth. And they both, including uh, Aquila and Priscilla or Prisca, uh, they both were, were for fellow apostles. Um, anyway, he was very fond of them. They housed him for the 18 months he was, he, he was there in Corinth. So uh, Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So even though 
they knew each other from Corinth. They housed Paul in Corinth. Where are they now? They're with Paul in Ephesus. So they're sending greetings back. Verse 20, all the brothers send you greetings. Here comes, a, here comes a good one. Greet one another with what? Holy kiss. Now, if you have the New Living Translation, which I'm really fond of, New Living Translation just got real anemic at that point and said, greet one another with signs of love. Because I think they were afraid to write holy kiss. Holy kiss is what's here. Um, now, it's funny, if you look in your study Bibles, most every study Bible feels the need to give you a little note that says some cultural things don't have to last forever. Um, yeah, the holy kiss didn't last forever. We that in the Christian community, as we went to went to the Gentile world, went to Rome, went to Europe, came to the Americas. Yeah, the Gentile world, we we replaced it with a handshake. You know, think about sharing the peace. In Christian worship, what we call sharing the peace, which usually means a handcake. You know, during COVID, it's been making the sign of the peace or waving at people, but it's a handshake or a hug. Um, that grew up out of Christian tradition as part of our worship service because of the holy kiss. Uh, and that, that was very much a part of the Mediterranean world, very much a part of the Jewish world. I know some of you have heard me tell this story about one time, because it is still very much a part of the, of, of, of the Middle Eastern world. I will never forget, because I'm not a native Middle Easterner. My heritage is Scott-Irish. We're reserved. If you're going to invade my space, give me notice and let me know you're getting ready to invade my space. That's the way we folks from Northern Europe are. But one time I was with a group in Jericho. Some of you, I don't know, might, some of you might have been in the room with me. I was at a group in Jericho, and Jericho's in the West Bank like Bethlehem. So everybody doesn't go to the West Bank, but things are common. I, I like going to the West Bank. And the people there love us. Because if you bring people, because a lot of people don't go to the West Bank now, but if you go to those Palestinian territories, very Middle Eastern territories, they are so grateful. You know, because usually when we come, we eat and we shop. And that makes them happy. We, we, boost, the, we boost the economy of Jericho. Anyway, I, we, we were in Jericho one day, and I, I'll never forget I've tried. I've tried to forget this. I'll never forget it. I was standing there um, looking up at, at the historic Mount of Temptation there in the desert outside of Jericho. And, and they, they are so happy we're there. They're so happy we're there if you come to Jericho or Bethlehem. Um, this, this Middle Eastern guy who hadn't shaved in about a week, I'm not sure he had bathed in about a week, got up close behind me, and before I knew it, I turned. And there this very hospitable Middle Easterner was. And he planted one right on my lips. <laughs> yeah, I've tried to forget that episode. Um, it's still part of their culture. I mean, you watch the news. In the Middle East, these guys will be kissing on each other. But that was our heritage early on. That was a Jewish thing. That was a Middle Eastern thing. So greet each other with a holy kiss. Uh, if, I, Paul's a friend of mine. If he were writing to you today in Highport, North Carolina, he would say maybe greet one another with a holy kiss if that person gives you permission and it doesn't bring ill repute on the Christian faith. Yeah, holy kiss. Can, and by the way, that's one of the reasons we were, one of the things we were accused of in the Roman world was we were accused of cannibalism for eating the, the body of Christ, drinking the blood of Christ. We were accused of incest. We were accused of having orgies because we met at night in strange places like catacombs, and they weren't always sure what we were doing. 
at night in our worship services. Sometimes we would have a love feast. When I was in Shelby, the newspaper messed that one up and wrote love fest in the newspaper. But that made me remember what love feast might have looked like to the uninitiated. And we're having love fest at night in worship services, worship gatherings, in places like the catacombs, and we're sharing the holy kiss. Yeah, the Roman folks worried about us. And that, that's part of the reasons we were persecuted. They, they, they didn't understand what was going on. Anyway, wrap up. Verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Paul, now I've got a painting that I love. Um, it's upstairs in, in the east office over near the sanctuary. It's a famous painting of, by Rembrandt of Paul writing his letters. He's sitting there, you know, I'm just glad he doesn't have a ballpoint pen in his hand, but he's, he's sitting there with a the quill, he's writing his letters. That's wonderful. Rembrandt didn't know better. If you read the New Testament, Paul always used a scribe. He always used a secretary. He always used a scribe. Uh, we know that because that was the practice in the ancient world. But we also know that because three places here, 2 Thessalonians and then the Galatians, uh, it's like Paul picks up the pen, the quill, uh, the stylus. He picks up the pen or quill or stylus, and he will kind of sign, sign his name at the end. That's why he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Everything else is written by the scribe, written by the secretary. But he says that at the end of three of his letters. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed or cut off. Uh, our Lord come. Actually, Paul at this point did not use Greek, is what he's writing in. He used an Aramaic phrase. And I hope your Bible, if it doesn't keep the Aramaic phrase, I hope it at least gives you a little footnote to tell you what that Aramaic phrase is. It's translated into English and what's in front of me, our Lord come. But the Aramaic is what? Maranatha. So Maranatha is Aramaic. Um, Abba is Aramaic. So that's the language that Jesus spoke. That's not the language the New Testament is written in. That's not the language the Greeks were, were, were speaking. But there were a few words that came into our use directly from the lips of Jesus, directly from the Jewish community in Jerusalem. Uh, Maranatha is one of them. That's Aramaic. But it's translated, our Lord come. So evidently what was happening in the early Christian community, regardless of where they were, um, they were using this Aramaic term. Maranatha. This is like in worship when you use, you use Hebrew in your worship. When if you use the word hallelujah, you're using Hebrew word. So that's, that's, that shows how old it is, how far back it goes. Well, an Aramaic word, uh, Aramaic phrase like Maranatha um, goes back to the time of Jesus. And they're still using in the life of the church. But also notice Maranatha, come Lord. How early the Christian community is referring to Jesus as Lord. And that was a title the early Jewish community would have only reserved for God. But they extended it to Jesus. Uh, so the great uh, Maranatha, verse 22. Then he concludes in typical Pauline fashion, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So that's 1 Corinthians. I've kept you t way too long. But we finished. <laughs> we finished. I can, I'm, I'm always excited to move on to something else when I finish something. So make sure you know everybody in the room and um, go in peace.